My safe word will be whiskey. Sorry, Rod, what was that? Whiskey. Hey, how's it going? This is Steve from the Lost in Translation podcast. And we we have probably the coolest, the most, I would say probably the most prestigious guests that we have had to date and probably will ever have on the podcast. Maybe not because we are pretty popular in Northern Canada, which has a population of like 2000 people. So, um, but we do drink a lot of whiskey and we love to talk to whiskey people. Uh, this this person is she is a world leading spirits expert as far as I know and understand she's an educator she's a judge she's an author uh, first American woman to serve on the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society as far as I know um, honestly I, I could probably go on for ten minutes with all the accolades and and good things about Heather Green that's who we got on the podcast Heather Green how are you doing. I'm good. How are you? I'm I'm doing excellent. I'm uh, we've been super excited to to meet up with you since we kind of started chatting back in in February. So I'm happy that we we were finally able to reserve some time with you because I know you're a super busy person, much busier than we are. That's for sure. So um, and you are a wealth of knowledge when it comes to whiskey. So I, I could not be like such flattering uh, accolades you've given given me to be your esteemed guest. I, I didn't give you those accolades. You gave them to yourself. That is, that is your hard work that that uh, that created all those. Like so an introduction, shall I say? What an introduction! It would probably it'd be uh, it it wouldn't be good for the podcast if I was to introduce people rudely, though. So I guess I have no choice but to be nice. So <laughs> could make right, for an exactly. interesting episode. Your audience is going to have to wonder whether I truly am all those things. Yes, they would. Which or if you're just pumping us all up. <laughs> honestly as soon as you google your name it's just pages and pages of of fun things to read and interviews and all kinds of excitement so we we love to start off our podcast with kind of going through our guest journey and kind of where it all started what what got you into whiskey what where the love began um so i'm, I'm going to kind of give you the floor for a little bit and and uh, i'd love to hear it all honestly don't don't hold anything out Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, Absolutely. Gosh, where's the journey start? So I think it's not one of the whiskey. I think it's different now than when I really first got into it, because now there's this culture and arena around more in the popular kind of uh, universe. Whiskey's be, has kind of emerged into it. And so when I started, it's not like you sit around and you go to your guidance a high school guidance counselor and say, I'm going to get into whiskey. How do you do that? <laughs> there wasn't anybody in college to, to, to tell me that this is something you could do or even post post graduating. So I think that whiskey kind of just found me um, at a certain time of my life. And at that particular time, uh, whiskey was just kind of starting to, I mean, it was, it, it's been around, of course, we know for for hundreds and hundreds of years around the world. So I'm not saying that it wasn't around, but it's really popular now, right? And so when I got into it, it just started, people just started getting curious about it. You know, it was just, it was around 2003, 2004. So almost 10 years ago now, a decade ago, no, 
no more than that yeah almost two (laughs) two decades ago yeah (laughs) it's been a lot longer than you thought (laughs) two decades 20 years ago yeah so um i'd say like 20 years ago is when you know i just started kind of i was in scotland i was in edinburgh scotland and you know as one does you start drinking whiskey and immersing yourself in in the culture right so i was living in edinburgh scotland and um you start getting in, into it there and so i didn't really seek to get into it other than just i was at the right place at the right time and i just rode that wave um you know that you know followed my curiosity because i thought that i was a musician at the top professional musician at the time and i thought there were these incredible synergies between writing and creating music and whiskey because both of them require um this set of skills that are technical um that are somewhat mathematical right so your scales and you're practicing your skills and there's a lot of discipline uh that you have to adhere to 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 be a good musician um but at the end of the day there is something really ethereal and really beautiful and kind of magical uh with music it can't all just be because of discipline it has to be something spiritual besides that and whiskey is the same way look you have to know your chemistry you've got to know how to tweak your stills you've got to know uh some basic facts about how maturation works how the chemical interactions between wood and whiskey works and but then at the end of the day there's just something spiritual and magical about it and something sensual about it. So with music, it's your ears. How does it make you feel? And whiskey's the same way. It's your palate and your nose. And how does it make you feel? So um, I found that to be a really comfortable place for me to, to start working when I was over there. And uh, the rest really, then it's like 20 years of following that curiosity. So there weren't really a lot of schools or there's no there wasn't really uh, a lot of it was apprenticeships mentoring with people before me who were really um intriguing to me and read a lot of reading a lot of smelling nosing and this is when you could get whiskey a lot of whiskeys around the world real cheaply and easily yeah that was a nice time right yeah very different (laughs) than it is now i think it's very different uh you know, it's a lot more competitive to get into this industry. It's very, uh, it's a little bit different now. There's uh, the access to the incredible amount of liquid that I had access to is dried up um, quite a bit, unless you're willing to, you know, befriend some bartenders and ask them for some tapes of things to know what, you know, what is value, what isn't. So that was like my early stages is really, um, I just, I just loved being at the Scotch Malt. I worked as a bartender at the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society and just fell in love with it and just tasted whiskeys and just saw those synergies between being an artist and making whiskey and and, um, did that for a while. And and then I really literally, it's all just being really fortunate, right place, right time. Um, I, the time I said, God, it'd be great to go back to New York. And I wish I could just talk about whiskey all day. I was so tormented and disappointed with the music industry at the time with the advent of all of things digital and how, where that was going and moving. And I could see what was every, all the musicians, they still do. So what was happening then. And I was like, I just want to talk whiskey all day. I just love that. You know, (laughs) who doesn't love that, right? Talking about whiskey and sampling and drinking. And and then uh, my brother-in-law sent me, an ad and said, Oh, look, there's, they're looking for a, an ambassador in New York. 
And this is again when um, uh, you know ambassador being an ambassador for a company wasn't this coveted difficult job to find it was like they needed somebody who knew whiskey uh scotch whiskey in particular because it was a scottish company and i was like i i know whiskey i just spent two years there so they hired me on the spot i like literally within five minute interview was with william granton's at the time they had a really great ambassador program so they make glenfiddich and the balvini and so i did that i ended up doing that for five years really traveling ended up traveling the world while I had a specific territory, but teaching Scotch whiskey to American consumers, which was now I'm just going from Scotland now back to the United States, but doing Scotch in the U S which was its own thing. Like, you know, and bourbon was still, you know, it still wasn't really where it is today. Um, yeah. but you know, I, I was there for a while and then, uh, left to, because I really needed, wanted to, again, follow my curiosity. I, I just didn't want to be immersed only in scotch, but I knew I had to really, uh, dive deeply into other types of whiskeys if I really wanted to be considered a whiskey expert. Um, so then I left and worked at the Flatiron Room in Fine and Rare Manhattan, which have an incredible, um, just like a really incredible, uh, whiskey collection and wrote a book. Um, so I wrote a book as you guys have it, spent a couple years traveling the world on that, wrote another book, which I still have to publish at some point and then consulted and then wrote, and then it just started. Now whiskey's like a big thing. Everybody wants to get into it. Right. So this is like 2015, 16, 17. It's just like on fire. Um, and just kind of now at that, at at that point, it's just kind of happened, you know, and I uh, came down here when, at, at maybe 2018, 19, 18, you know, I'd been at it for a little while. I did a lot of different things in the industry, but I hadn't scaled and built a company. So I came to Texas to do that. That was probably the craziest move. <laughs> How was that? <laughs> Going to Texas or starting a company? Both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love Texas now. It's interesting. I never thought, you know, I never really thought that I'd be here, but it's absolutely like been such a, a amazing adventure. I mean, just co- going to a different part of the United States that's so culturally different than the Northeast. I think it was really good for me to get out and learn and, and be in another place and be with the different people. And Texas has allowed me to really kind of tap the frontiers of whiskey making down here in America to see you know, there's wide open space. I couldn't do this in New York, you know? And then of course I, Kentucky and Scotland, there's enough people doing whiskey there. So, you know, it's perfect. Yeah. Those places are crowded already. So crowded. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Plus I feel like the, like a region like Texas or like Colorado or, and all these other kind of regions popping up around Kentucky and around the world are starting to kind of steer the eye a little bit more, which is really cool. I think so. And also we can start doing really fun experimentation, um, figuring out what micro terroirs are or or terroirs like in bigger regions like Texas versus other places. But then within Texas, how does heat and dry heat contribute to flavor making in a barrel versus humidity and high heat or lots of humidity and and no heat which is a more temperate climate you know there's just all these really interesting things to explore down here um and i think that the texan wide open space just visually and actually physically the space to have a place to do this has been really great as a whiskey maker so where did where did it 
like where did the distillery conversations start for uh for my lemon green so when i was in new york as i said i was consulting after i had written my book i'd been working with lots of brands behind the scenes and um helping them from do lots of things from uh building their brands um to coming up with effective marketing campaigns building brand equity or volume uh helping them with their liquid strategy meaning like how to use the barrels effectively are they good enough what to do with them so i'd been starting to work a lot behind the scenes and i have this uh really cool group of people uh marsh milam's one of them uh, as the milam and green mm -hmm. i a friend of a friend had referred her to me um and she said that they had purchased a bunch of barrels they were in the process of building a distillery down here and needed some consult you know and doing the type of thing that i'd done so i came down here and i really thought that she was on to something you know she had picked she had found these really great barrels that uh we still have she amassed this cool inventory with some a group of other people down here she had beautiful packaging a great idea uh, she'd hired uh, Marlene Holmes from Jim Beam, who was a distiller for 27 years there. There were uh, really great, um, just so many really interesting things. Austin, Texas is just a super fun, vibrant, growing city. Uh, and then there's San Antonio, which is also the same type of place. And the distillery that they had was kind of tiny seed of a distillery and a wonderful product was coming out of Blanco, Texas. Uh, they call it Blanco, not Blanco. I learned that <laughs> Blanco down here. Um, and I fell in love with them. I just felt like there was just something really cool about it. Uh, and I thought, you know, could I ever do something like this? It felt really challenging and scary. And, and um, but it also felt exciting. And I hadn't done this. And it just, I, as from the beginning, when I was in Scotland, get following my curiosity this is really this the same thing it's just being fortunate right time right place and being ready to say yes and jump in and be slightly i i like to take risks um and i think you have to do that if you're going to start a company <laughs> yeah that, that comes that just comes with the territory right yeah that starter you know marsha milam had really kind of started this this whole um idea and but like many original founders and what was really great about her and the team that was here was they needed to get to that next level and they knew that they needed to hire people who could bring them to that level so i came on we formed milam and green and we went national pretty quickly um and then i brought on an executive team so we have these incredible uh, leadership team now we've expanded to a full capacity full running distillery with dozens of staff running around there bottling and distilling and mashing and fermenting like it's the full deal so and i learn every day you know it's like making whiskey but trying to be the best leader you can be is it's a very different thing. those are very different things and Absolutely. um it's humbling because you realize you know this is probably the first time in my life you really bump up against your skill set as as a whiskey expert that's one thing but then taking and trans that's that part i have press and making great whiskey and product but the new thing now is how do you harness that but harness a team and have them aligned and build something really great
that's a very different skill set. Absolutely. You said too, Heather, like you, I mean, cause there is a school for this kind of stuff now, right? Like Harriet Watt has the the degree in, in, uh, in distilling and brewing, but you talked about how you sort of tackled this all just by trying new things, moving around, trying new jobs. But you mentioned, uh, just different mentors along the way. Is there anyone that sort of stuck out like kind of as someone that really helped you on your journey, on your whiskey journey to getting to where you are now? Yeah, there's a, that's a great question. So there's kind of buckets of people. So from a purely whiskey making, blending, batching perspective over in Scotland, Dr. Rachel Berry and Dr. Bill Lumsden are two for nosing, like really getting into uh, nosing and tasting and, and the beauty of that probably Dr. Barry was really somebody early on. I thought, Oh my God, that's the job I want. <laughs> that's probably <laughs> the first time I really thought that, you know, that I could really do something like that. So from a blending and batching perspective, absolutely. From an entrepreneurial perspective, uh, building businesses, uh, have me having a passion meet with, hardcore business skills to grow and scale and leadership there. I think Tom, my friend, Tommy Tardy, who grew the Goodnight group in New York, they, that's the flat iron room and finding rare, you know, how do you, how do you do that? How do you take your passion and then have other people help believe in that passion to get where you need to go. So from that perspective, that would be somebody that I really admire um, Nicole Austin, a friend of mine who runs George Dickel. I just love the way she is able to really embrace whiskey making practices to make something beautiful, but she's a great business mind as well. So, um, you know, somebody like her has been really, really fabulous to kind of be alongside together really, um, and grow and see what she's doing. Oh, there's probably a lot more I've got to think about. It's like, it's like the, should we just run the music on yeah. it now? Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. the Oscar speech where you're trying to remember everyone in your yeah. life that helped you. And you're like, I, I'm going to forget somebody for sure. Yeah. And I, I we're, we're going to want to get more into the nerdy stuff of the distillery uh, okay. right away. But I, I had to ask you about this and I wanted to go back to your book because you wrote a book you're a whiskey nerd. Clearly we're all whiskey nerds, but you really did write a book that I think could be for the very most beginning person on their whiskey journey, but it also could be for someone like me or any, any of us. Um, but like, where did, when you're, when you're beginning to write that book, where does that idea come from? And how do you make that decision that this is going to be a book for everybody? This is going to be a book to bring more people onto this, you know, mm-hmm. kind of whiskey, whiskey bandwagon. That's a really good question. So the book writing, the first draft of that book was pretty nerdy and heady. And really the, where that book landed was a great testament to the editor at Penguin at the time, uh, Penguin Random House it became, or the Random Penguin House, as some people say now. <laughs> but um, so it's a great editor. And your editor will kind of say, what are we trying to do here? And it was a really tough, voice. Thank you for saying that because I, I did want it to feel comfortable enough for someone new to get into the category, but it couldn't be dummy dummied. Um, so she would call it, you know, like candy coated science. And she would say, you're, you're teaching scientific 
um, concepts here and you're, you're doing that, but we got to do it in a way that almost makes you feel like you're not in a boring science class. So the first draft was definitely a lot more, I think more, um, what you like might've bored some people. So she's like, get your voice into it. Pretend you're just chatting with someone at a bar and you're trying to explain concepts of, you know, molecules that smell. (laughs) <laughs> so that's what I did. I just started doing that, and I think that's how we ended up in that place. But it, I'm glad you said that. I, I really am. I really did try to make that so that it wasn't that it felt like comfortable enough for somebody new, but meaty enough to really get it if you wanted to get nerdy. Yeah, actually, yeah. It was it was a book that I grabbed, like I found, stumbled upon it probably on Amazon as I was, you know, fairly new into the journey and I picked it up and was like, okay. And obviously I'm a huge YouTube guy, watch YouTube videos all the time. So I'd seen a couple where, you know, they tried to get you to pick blind a $40 whiskey versus a $400 whiskey. And pretty sure you nailed every single one of those, which is awesome. Um, but yeah, and then I picked up the book, read through it and I've probably read it three times now back and forth, but I've also lent oh it gosh. out to people. Oh. Yeah, I've lent, I've lent it out to people, you know, that have come on, joined the journey after us. And um, it's it, like you said, it's you get some of that nerdy aspect of it and it'll help breed the nerd inside in a whiskey nerd inside somebody. But it also it's written at a level that anybody anywhere along the journey can definitely dig into it and not, you know, sit there and be totally confused about what you're talking about, which is yeah, editor, writer, obviously teaming up and making that work perfectly well thank you so much that's that's great the other thing i wanted to make in that book was that i brought a lot of all as many whiskey making uh arenas as i could so you know there's canadian whiskey a scotch whiskey irish japanese because a lot of books just usually focus on one but it's really hard to understand what bourbon is if you don't also understand what the other ones are because what's what's the differentiating factor that makes it so different that's what's cool. Yeah, and I, I specifically like the parts. It's, it's definitely when I was a more of a beginner, where you go through like a label and what a label is supposed to sh- show you, and um, the different styles of whiskey, and talking about like you said, different areas of the world where they produce whiskey as well. It you know you, I have lots of bourbon only books or Scotch centric books and Irish whiskey books, and you know a lot of them either focus on history or focus on you know, the style and what makes it that style. But that's what I found from this book is it led, it opened so many doors to knowledge. And that's probably why I read it more than once. Thank you. Wow. you is this where you, is this where you reveal the title of your, your next book? I, I said, it's, it's, it's yeah. going to be called now that you're making whiskey, it's going to be called whiskey making a guide for whiskey nerds. That was my guess, but you, you don't have to tell us now. No, I actually read another book and it's like kind of an installed project on all distilled spirits. Um, but I don't know when I'm going to get time to finish that. And I always have book ideas and I always want to write another book in my head every day. I'm like, well, that'll be a good book, but. Writing a book sounds like a lot of work. It is a lot of yeah, work. Yeah, I, I have no doubt. Like it's, I, I do writing here and there. And uh, like after I'm done, 
a couple pages. I'm exhausted and I don't want to, I don't want to write for like a month. So. <laughs> oh, right. I think part of the, the trick is just, it has to be bite-sized pieces. So yeah. in the, I mean, I think there's some, the only other way I wasn't working full time the way I am now while I was writing the book. So I, that was the advantage. I don't know how people write and work full time, but they do it all. They do it all the time. So I think part of that is just, you know, the way I was able to write is you need to do like, say, okay, I'm going to do 300 pages a day or 500 pages a day. Well, you do that over a pretty quick period of time. You'll have a book written. Yeah, that's you know, true. As well as, as the movies teach us, right. You just escape to a cabin all by yourself for a couple months and, and then a book <laughs> is produced, right? Because <laughs> you got to produce. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A cabin and a typewriter. Yeah. I wouldn't mind I'm that. Crunching the paper and chucking it. Yeah. And then the wind blows it away and then you got to start all over again. Right. It's... <laughs> um, along the way, Heather, you've obviously, like Steve mentioned at the beginning, you've, you've won some prestigious awards and a lot of them, you were either the first woman or like Steve said, the first American woman on the SM, SMWS board. Um, in terms of women in whiskey, like we, we have friends of ours that also have a podcast and they're, a couple of a couple of women in whiskey and they're really focusing on the women in whiskey aspect with their newest season and we've we've come across interviews where you know one you kind of said you know you didn't really want to talk about it. it's more just whiskey and then um i, I find especially in the last couple of years the the gender roles and you know kind of getting rid of the the gender part of it is just a role in whiskey yeah. Um, and the barrier, yeah. Breaking down the barriers. Um, is there anything you wanted to maybe touch upon on that? Sure. So it is a question that I'm asked a lot and the way, best way to describe it for me is that if I'm talking about being a woman in whiskey or talking about gender in whiskey or what's it like or the changes or anything that has to do with the identity of being being a, a, a woman it means i'm not talking about fermentation smelly molecules building a business uh experimentation uh nosing tasting brand all the things that really interest me mm -hmm. it takes me away from that and it feels very limited so for me it's like it's just there's so many more exciting i don't know the difference i I don't know what it's like to be not a straight female in this business. <laughs> so it's like, it's in a lot of ways that, you know, it just feels boring to me to talk about it. Um, and so I also like recently there were some lists of like top women in the industry. And if I'm not in it, I'm fine because I want to be in the top whiskey makers in the industry, not top of the half of them. Right. So this kind of mixed, you know, I do think that it's more powerful to just do what I do and not talk about it mm -hmm. and just do it. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know if that's what a popular take is. I think other people think it's important to talk about it. I, I find it just not that interesting to me. I just trying to make whiskey and build a company and I happen to be a woman. We were, yeah, yeah. fair enough. We were yeah. talking right before you came on, Heather, and I said to Steve, I said, like, I said, Heather's one of the top people in whiskey. I said, and, and we, I said, like, 
yes, she's one of the top women. She's one of the top people in the whiskey industry. She's with the books and everything. So I think, I think we understand what you're saying, but it was, Sean saw that article. I saw it too, but where you, someone had asked you that question and I, I found your, oh, I, I don't get offended by being asked yeah. at all. I mean, I didn't mean it's, anything like that. It's just, an, um, the, it's an interesting, you know, place and I'll talk about it, but mostly that, I guess that's kind of how it feels. Um, is that there's just more exciting things for me to talk about. Yeah. And I'm definitely more of a guy whiskey expert. <laughs> well, and you <laughs> mentioned for, for 20 years, it's been still a guy's, I know more about guys and how they categorize and buy things and what they respond to, what their taste is. Yeah. I think it's still a frontier for women. I, I guess I'm, I'm more serious about that. Like, or, or um, sorry, curious about if you feel like it's evolved to, to a good point or if it's continued, if you feel from, cause you're, you live inside the industry more than we do. So it's, is it, is it evolving to a place that you, that you want it to be? Do you see more, do you see more females wanting to get into whiskey now that some of the barriers are, are down? Cause that's, that's what I think the cool part is, is that more and more every year you're seeing more women in whiskey. And honestly, I think that we'll have a lot of better whiskey on the shelves if there is more women in whiskey for, for lots of good reasons, honestly. So that's, that's kind of where right. I'm more curious. Is yeah. You... I think that for sure there's been, I think uh, the pressure within larger companies has been on them. They know they need to hire a more diverse workforce and not yeah. just women. I mean, it's, you know, it's just a complete, uh, just more diversity in general is yeah. needs, needs to happen. And it's starting to, happen now but I, you know again it's not i'm not really a, an expert on any of these topics um a whiskey expert so it, it it does always feel a little awkward to talk about you know diversity and women and things like that because i'm ill equipped for uh, with the language to use or how it should be done or if it's evolved and i feel like every minute at any second if i say yes it's evolved there's probably many women and in, in different cultures who feel like it hasn't for them. And so, you know, it's really unique. Um, for me, it has opened doors and has, but I still think there's a long way to go uh, for other women. All right. Enough of that. Like let's me. get, let's, yeah, well, absolutely. And we're, we're seeing, I think we're seeing it. Is it at the place that it should be probably not still got miles to go, but we're going in the right direction. I this. It's really, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Yeah. So what you no, see culturally in the world, the challenges there are going to be reflected in all industries, including yeah. whiskey. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, let's get into whiskey. How's that? Sure. Tra I know Travis is just itching to ask some really nerdy, nerdy questions. So, well, I'm sure, I'm sure we all are, but you saw we you are. You talked about, uh, so we have, we can kind of get into, we have the three, we have three of the, the three whiskeys that are going to be available in Alberta, I believe. Uh, we have the single barrel bourbon, we the have rye the, port. the port finished rye, and then we have the triple barrel bourbon, which I just poured for my wife the other night and she loved it. Oh, um, nice. But when you were talking about other things that you would rather be talking about, you mentioned fermentation and I just got all, all excited. <laughs> Uh, I just did a, oh, sorry, go Steve. Well, I was just gonna say, can I, can I ask what, uh, like, what was the, what was the discussion behind deciding which products to bring into Canada was, did you, was that by design or was it just purely supply? That's what we have. Was it? Okay. I was, well, I was curious if it was like some sort of, 
No, you wanted to introduce many. them this way and not. Yeah, we have uh, those are our three. Those are our three core SKUs, our okay. three core brands, and then we have a few uh very limited edition products as well um hopefully a couple of those will get in there but in general those are our three we're still a small boutique uh you know handcrafted brands so even though even just those three are are highly you know we don't make uh, you know hundreds of thousands of cases of our whiskey so do you yeah. have a single cast program that we could convince rob for us to we select do. select a Absolutely. select an alberta cask for him yeah. You, you, we do. So we would be happy to. All right, Rob, I know you're listening. So put it, put it on the whiteboard behind you. Yeah. <laughs> put it on the whiteboard. One, it'll just be a symbol. Cast equals 280. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Write it in an equation. Equals yeah. September, 2022. That's, that'd be a good formula. That's, that seems like a perfect timing too. <laughs> yeah. The whiskey you're making at the distillery right now. I mean, the stuff that we're going to be tasting, this is source whiskey, correct? No, actually, I'm glad you asked. So I, uh, this is an opportunity for me to tell you guys what I do very differently than any other whiskey brand you probably speak with. There might be a few other that sort of do what we do. So what we do, and uh, let's go back to get nerdy with the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society and the tasting panel. So one of the jobs, what, what did that actually mean? Well, the tasting panel was a group of people who would go and taste beautiful barrels to decide whether or not they were good enough for international distribution. Now, should we bottle these up? What do we call it? You know, tasting notes, yes, no, some were better than others. I mean, it was just like a magical experience. I just loved doing it so much. Every cask was slightly different. Some, they, we did say we wouldn't like, you know, what we would choose like two out of a bunch to decide which ones we thought would, would be great to, to bottle up for the next bottling uh, for sale for the members around the world. And in Scotland, the tradition of that, if you see like Gordon McPhail is another one, Caden Head and Signatory, these companies, that Boutique Whiskey Company, I think is doing it. Um, that is independent bottling. And I loved the art for, I just love that. I, I loved finding and finding gems, you know, and this group around us at the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society were whiskey experts. They were really knew how to nose and taste. These people weren't off the street. They were, you know, they were in the industry. They knew what to look for. They had great tasting notes. We had a lot of fun. Um, and so when I came on board Mile and Green, I thought that was still a really great practice. Now in America, they call it, they get, have a they have it a word they call this sourcing, like it was this really bad thing. And it would drive me crazy when I was writing my book before I even joined this. And I was writing, they're like, sourcing was this. I was like, it's not a terrible, the practice in and of itself is historical. And in fact, there's always been more brands than distilleries. There still are. You know, when you look at Kentucky, there's way more brands than distilleries. So they're always kind of making whiskey distilleries are making whiskey for other brands. It's what are those brands doing to create something really special? And so we started calling it sourced whiskeys, which wasn't in itself a practice. What happened historically was that a few first craft brands made a mistake in their marketing and thought it was something that they shouldn't say they're doing when they could have easily just said, this is what we do because we're good at it, just the way the Scottish do. And said so they pretended that they made it themselves. So it looked deceptive. And then it became a negative connotation. And then we got the word sourcing. When in reality, that was a marketing misfire. 
Yeah. You know, so if I was at the helm of those early, they would say, what is your recipe? I would say, I'm actually, and I would talk about what I did in Scotland say, I'm the best sorcerer ever. I'll find you the best whiskeys ever. Always buy my brand because it's going to be, you know, and I'd position it that way. And you, you would never even have that as a discussion now. So it was really interesting how this little marketing misfire in probably 2012, 13 led to this giant misunderstanding and cleaving of sourcing versus creating your own whiskey, which didn't even have to be anything that was even a discussion. It was just a way of making whiskey. So when I came on board, I knew that I would do that. But I also knew that if you're going to be a credible distillery, you have to make whiskey. So we do make whiskey. We make whiskey and we made it, make it in a 300 gallon pot still. And we also make it, we're just expanding now into a thousand gallon pot still. But there's another country that I love how they make whiskey and that's Japan. Now, what is it that they do that I think is so fabulous is that when Yamazaki comes to market with a product or any of them, because the way that the Japanese industry is set up, let's use Yamazaki as an example. Oh, we could use other as an example. There's only two big ones out there, biggest ones. Uh, there's more, but I mean, sorry, some of your viewers might say there's more. There is more. I'm talking about the two big ones, though. <laughs> what made them so tremendously successful is that they were so self-sustained in their maturation of casks across all the way up and down Japan. And they are using different stills. So like they might use a short squat still, they have a pot still, they have a column still, they have hybrid still. They're using a lot of different stills to create this wonderful array of character in their whiskeys. And so when the distiller, the master blender comes along and says, hey, listen, I'm ready to make some great whiskey. Wow, they have like different warehouses, different stills, different casks. Like, and, and you just think about all the different variables that can come together and make a great whiskey. It's fabulous. So I want to bring that into making whiskey too. What, right? No one. I'm making bourbon. Bourbon is a lot of strict laws under which to be called a bourbon or a rye in America, but that wasn't one of them. It didn't say you have to make it in one state or you can only use one kind of still. So what do we do? We are making whiskey in Kentucky. So Marlene, who's from Beam, 27 years, she goes to Kentucky and we make whiskey on a giant column still there. And we age in a warehouses up there. And then we bring those down into Texas and we bring some Texas there. And now I have stills in Blanco and I have stills that I'm using in Kentucky. Do you oh, see crazy. what's happening here? Yeah. So now just like by some of my favorite whiskey makers in Japan, when I'm ready to bottle or blend or batch, I have opened these warehouse doors and I have all of that at my fingertips to create something really beautiful. And if I feel like it needs something, I'll go get it. So I literally think about the product first, cause I'm a picky whiskey drinker. Like you guys are like, what does that product need to taste like? What, who is it for? It's for a whiskey drinker, refined whiskey drinker with that's, you know, wants something refined and beautiful like I do. And then backing it up, how do I get there? Now, that's a very different philosophy of craft whiskey making than building, a, building it all and then waiting and hoping that what that creates is something beautiful. Because if I know anything back from my very first job, is you can't control for that very often. You have different cats are going to do different things. Uh, you may have a different distiller. You don't know if they know, if they're trained. So you really want to find out what you want to make and then say, for me, it was like, how do I, how do I get there? 
Well, I can get there by having some Texas distilled spirit because that'll give me something unique and unusual and a pop of spice. I can also have Kentucky liquid, which I think is like very what we're used to when we think of bourbon, right? So we're like foil, like nice vanillas and maples and cloves. It's your traditional whiskey, mm-hmm. right? So we, then I'm like, okay, we're going to get that. And then I always like really vintage old whiskeys, right? Because you always I want a little bit, you want some structure in there. And we're not old enough to have 14, 10, nine-year-old whiskey. So I have to find that. And mm-hmm. that's what I find. And that is our triple cast whiskey, by the way. So it's three, uh, see how I did that? Right in there. Three different whiskeys, bunch of different stills, bunch of different casts coming together, aged in four, uh, aged in three states, distilled in three states, Some, most of it by us. And that's where the triple cast comes from. You you so, talked about you talked about nose a lot. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I've got the single barrel and the triple cask in front of me, and like both both noses are incredibly pungent and rich and like kind of explosive. And then you get into the palates, and it's approachable and kind of just this like it just it's got this really cool kind of journey to it where the nose gets you excited for the palate, and I'm sure that's by design. But I wanted yeah. to kind of wanted to ask it's you. everything. Yeah. Nosing, I can immediately just, I don't have to taste my whiskeys. If I'm tasting or evaluating uh, right away, I just know what nose uh, I can eliminate pretty quickly. Because it's all about like the approach and the nose and the beauty of it and the look of it. I mean, it's really a full suite of like sensual things that happen. And yeah, that's the nose. Nose is great. I just find that so many, so many brands fall short on the nose. They don't focus enough on, and that's, that's your, like, that's the opening impression of any whiskey. It's such an important component, which is why I'd love that you, that you brought that up. I think so too. I think there's a lot more to get on the nose than on, on the taste. And Travis, I hope I answered your question about sourcing. I I think I just went on too long. No, it was perfect. And I think when we post this episode, I always like to kind of post highlights and I think that's going to be a big part of what we focus on is just your answer there, I think is going to clear a ton of stuff up. I did a post today on Bimber Distillery, um, who we're bringing in soon from London, England, and I called it the blender's art or the art of blending. And I, in that post just today, I said that I think blending and vatting at the distillery is probably the most underrated aspect of whiskey making. And you just perfectly explained that. And, and I didn't mean when I said these are sourced in the negative term. Oh, no, I, I, yeah. I, I got you. Yeah. And what I, what I wanted to ask though, is, is the whiskey that you are putting down at the, and that you're distilling yourselves. If you could just get a little bit of like, first of all, how, how long have you been putting cast down in terms of, like how old yeah. is that whiskey now? And then just a little bit about the kinds of whiskey that you're making there. Is it like just a little bit of that? Cause that's the stuff that I get excited about. Okay, cool. So we're making uh, bourbon at our distillery. So it's uh, 58% corn and then we have high rye and about 8% barley. And so what that does down here, and we distill it in, well, our distill still that we've been using is the tiniest little uh, 300 gallon copper pot still. And with a great distiller, you're going to get a really cool, excellent distillate coming out of that. Now it's very different than what comes out of your 
big, more column refinery type industries in Kentucky, which have a very different flavor profile and a really delicious one, but it's different. So imagine a pot still is almost like cooking over an open fire. So you have this like, it's very robust. So you've tasted craft whiskey. So it has like a peppery, um, very sweet, very mapley. Uh, it's it's really delicious. I'll, I'll send you guys a sample, high proof. Um, yeah, and you can see what we're doing. So we started doing that around 2017, now 2018, but a lot of them are going out as our Texas-only distillers editions. Um, this past year, we, uh, like everybody, have hit some challenges in supply chain and steam pipe costs and all sorts of fiddly things like we're ready to we, we upgraded to a thousand gallon pot still from Vendome. we're so excited about it it's just everybody's dying to distill again and it's just like every week is another like oh there's a a small electrical gadget we needed from home depot and they weren't gonna have it for a month you know like just stuff like that is just unbelievable so we're hoping that happens soon so that's really what we're doing in Texas and out of our pot still. So the create the character that creates is a very um, different, beautiful. It's actually in the triple cask. So that's what gives it that spice, that little back end pop um, that makes it feel like there's something a little different about it than just your everyday, you know, more your Kentucky or Tennessee style whiskeys. It's no insult to them. That's not what I mean by that, but it's, it has a little bit of a differentiating factor that's almost indescribable. And I think that comes from that Texas piece. Did so I answer just, the question? Yeah. Oh yeah. More than, oh, <laughs> I don't think that's going to be an issue. Maybe hey, I'm you, you're using the same uh, mash bill in Kentucky as you are in Texas. We are. And yes, you know okay. what's really interesting? It's malted rye. Now, malted oh, rye okay. is something that a lot of people aren't using. And what I think happened for us in a happy, happy accident, by using malted rye, you're getting a drier and maybe a little bit of a richer taste to the whiskeys that you would then you would get without malting your rye. You get more of a green aspect to your rye when it's not malted is more expensive for us but it actually lends almost like this this feeling of age to it because it's malted and i think it adds that richness to our both of our uh kentucky distillate they've never used malted rye before um and then our blanco distillate is really it's really cool that we do that yeah that is that's pretty un that's very unusual for sure mm -hmm. And such a so, high, like like a like brewers brewers would be the ones that use maybe more malted rye, but the the whiskey industry does not at all, right? Not as much. So oh. I think it really adds a complexity there, and it kind of belies its age. So we're finding yeah. that even our Kentucky whiskey, there uh, it's about two and a half. It'll be three years old soon. We've been laying it down, just waiting, waiting. And I always thought like we'd have to wait four years, but there's they're already pretty great and i'm just dying to release them but i think the malted rye just when you have that is 30 percent over you know mm -hmm. your you know over 30 percent of your constituent in your whiskey that's going to make a big difference and it does i'd be really interested to try the difference between what's aging in texas and what's aging in kentucky i think that'd be really cool to see that difference. it has been something i've been working on for many years and we have just a very few amount of casts and I've been waiting for three years and I can kick myself for not putting more of those casts and doing some nation, you know, like massive release of that. 
Mm-hmm. But we are going to do something special at the end of this year with with those two, so people can start seeing and understanding how the terroir, really very specifically, will change between Kentucky and at least where we are in Hill Country, Texas. So the question, you know, some people are like, what's the difference between a, a Texas and Kentucky? And this will be the answer. Uh, yeah, there's quite quite a difference <laughs> in a lot of in a lot of ways. Where do you where do you source your rye from? Is it from like southern? Well, we think our, yeah. Oh, uh, well, for our port finished rye, that's MGP. So the MGP rye. Um, but the actual grain, sorry, the grain itself. Oh, our grains come from. Uh, let's see, the malted rye. I, I can't remember that. I have to ask my uh, Marlene. Just because there's there's usually like a distinctive difference between yeah. like a southern grown rye and a northern grown rye. There is. Rye, there is. is yeah. We get it from the north. I just can't. I know we get Washington State, Oregon, okay. Kentucky, Indiana, and Texas. That are the four states where we get our um, where we get our rye. But I just off the top of my head, I can't remember where the malted where she's sourcing the supply chain of the malted rye. I have to okay, look up cool. what state that comes from. I know the corn is from West Texas. The barley is from Washington. You know, I think the rye might come from Washington State as well. But let me double check. Interesting. Yeah, because in the northern, I, I feel you can get some more unique flavor out of a northern grown rye than you can a southern grown rye. I feel like a lot of the southern grown rye. Create, yeah. Yeah, it creates we like. We don't get a rye here. Yeah, for sure. Some of the southern grown rye, I feel kind of, they they bring the, the similar flavor notes as just the corn does when the Northern rye tends to bring a little bit more kind of a, I don't know, just more of a, more of a palate, I guess, but. Hmm. Interesting. I believe that. I could just be talking out of my, my, my. No, you probably taste it. I'd have to taste them side I, by side. I sure sound like I know what I'm talking about. Don't yeah, you, you do. <laughs> <laughs> I just say, I don't know. I just say, I don't know. If I yeah, know. I was going to say, I we have similar backgrounds. I started as a musician, and now I'm a whiskey expert, too. So we're, we're pretty much just alike, except I'm really crappy at playing guitar, and I don't consider myself an expert at all. But <laughs> um, yeah, I'm just joking. Tra- Travis, go ahead. I know you're itching to ask some more questions. No, I mean, we're probably getting close to an hour here. I just, uh, I've, you when I... Add more time. Long, I think you're, it's more your audience. You can just edit yeah we'll just, yeah, we'll no. just we'll just edit out steve's rye talk there his his rye ted talk <laughs> uh, take that right out yeah. the um the thing i wanted to ask is so we we work with a distillery that uses a pot still to make bourbon and when i'm trying to explain the difference between a pot still bourbon and a column still bourbon i basically say what what i think is with a column still bourbon you tend to be stripping more it's the, and there's more flavor potentially left in a pot still because of a whole bunch of different things. And I say, you're probably getting more cask influence with a column still bourbon and less so with a pot still bourbon. I could be completely wrong here. And I, that's why I wanted to ask you what your thoughts on that are. Let me think about that. So I would agree for sure. For, I think what you're asking is like, I see what you're saying. So you, you could, in general, yes, I think those the answer to what you're saying is yes, but a great distiller will try to make sure that the column still, it, it does strip, I guess, strip more if you want it to, but if you don't want it to, you can get really exacting with the column still and your flavors in that. Um, and then if you're a really good distiller, have this 
character of your distillate out of the column still that you think it's going to work really well with your cast so that you don't have what you fall into, which is this thin stripped column still spirit that's going to take on the character, a majority of the character of the cask without that interplay. And it's an interesting conversation because I think that a good distiller and team will try to retain that distillate character and have enough of it that shine through all the way to the end, like what you're saying. And in general, a pot still does have bigger, robust flavor, and there, therefore it, you'll have more of those, what I call them, the smelling molecules are going to get up and over that still a lot more and into your cask. You're going to have more richness in that cask already. So I would, I would agree with that. The question, I guess, really is, you know, I think that if you have a really amazing distiller, they can manipulate that column still to do what it needs to do. We are finding that said, and this is like really interesting, like I can send to you, maybe I should, I should do that as a class once, like, because what you're saying, well, we're doing that in Kentucky, a column still with everything the same, including us and a pot still, and what are those two spirits? That's kind of what we're experimenting with, right? Mm -hmm. But what is it off the bat? Do those two white spirits taste differently off the two and they're dramatically different? That's and they're, it is thicker and bigger off the pot still, like much more aldehyde like big apple flavors, a little more like pungent and rough and things like, I guess that's the word. If I want to use non-technical words, like rough yeah. and punchy in the gut, you know, and that Kentucky spirit with the same mash bowl and us going up there, it's definitely more clean. Um, and that goes back to that excitement I was telling you about earlier, why I always want both. Because why, as a whiskey maker, when people are like, you're going to always distill there. I'm like, well, why wouldn't I want that in? You know, like, well, do I have to choose? Like, blend those together and you have yeah. something really cool. Or, like, now I have three products. I have the distillate from Blanco. I have this uh, stuff, great stuff from Kentucky. And now I have a third product, which is them mixed together. Yeah, that's really cool. What about the angel share difference between Texas and, and Kentucky? Because that's going to change how the spirit evolves in the barrel quite a bit. I yeah, know. we do see quite a bit down here. It's a yeah. big loss. And it's uh, another great question. So angel share is a function both of heat and humidity. So it gets when it gets really dry here, that's when all that water evaporates. It's heat and the dryness. Because heat and humidity would keep that, you know, that would keep that water in that cask and you'd have less of that angel share loss. But we're seeing 8% in the first couple of years and that's a tremendous amount of loss and then it kind of peters out a little bit. But we're always, you know, it's stressful actually because the old and also the older whiskey gets, you know, you're, we're like as a small brand, we think to ourselves, oh my gosh, we need to get that out of a cask, right? So we need to take that, we don't want it to evaporate anymore and now we're, now I have to go and try to find batting tanks. And then that, you know, a batting tank to a place to put it so it stop ages, but doesn't ruin the whiskey. And then I have to have space for it. I mean, like all these things that are the consequences of just wanting to take your whiskey out of the cask. It just brings in a lot of stuff. But yeah, it's a big deal to not want to lose your inventory to angel share. Just one more variable to manage, right? Yes. <laughs> and every day is moving stones. <laughs> it is for sure here here in alberta we have a, a similar like angel share in the sense that it's a dry but it's dry and and cool which i know 
he messes with the casks even a, even a little bit differently according to the distillers okay. up here. So it's uh, that's one thing I find really fascinating is that the difference in angel share in all the places that whiskey is being created because that's that's a massive variable in creating that's contributing to a, a massive like a difference in in flavor profile and and everything combined. Yes, because water, the less water you have left in your cask, your prices and yeah, it changes. Um, it definitely changes the the flavor profile. So water solubles, uh, you know, so you've got uh, you've got a lot more flavor that can you can have flavor that interacts with water when it's gone. You know, it's now thicker and richer. But then you might have to add water to the end. But the water you add at the end doesn't hasn't been sitting in the cask, also grabbing yeah. all those flavors. So. Isn't Anoka talking about Anoka is a distillery just outside of Edmonton, Heather. And I mm -hmm. thought they were talking about putting the casks down by that little swampy area just to try and have Keep a little the humidity. Yeah. Uh, just, so they don't lose quite as much, uh, quite as oh. much down there. So Maybe. it's just little things like that are so cool. Look at a weird swamp funk out of it too. Maybe. <laughs> Which I'm sure the enthusiasts will go crazy for, for some reason. But Why not? <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, it is it is definitely a, it's definitely something to, there's a lot of things to contend with it feels uh, like coming at you at all angles i have no doubt it's I, yeah um we so we always we we go through a segment called pulling the bung which we ask you a bunch of really uh some some useless some useful questions okay. uh sean you want to take take it yep i do i want to ask you a bunch of questions I want to have them answered immediately. Are you threatening me, Dick? That's not a threat. What? That's a fact. I'll fucking kill you. What do you want to know? What? Say what again. Say what again. I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. You ready to go? I'm ready. Okay. What is your favorite American whiskey style? Bourbon. What is your favorite distillery in Scotland? Balvini. What is a whiskey um, that your company hasn't made yet, but you would like to make? Gin. Hmm? Um, favorite type of cask to finish in? Port. Okay. Uh, what is your spirit animal? Oh, oh no. This uh, one always stumps everyone. Tiger. Okay. Nice. Oh, there you go. <laughs> um, favorite Scottish food? Uh, uh, banana toffee pudding. Oh. Banana. Oh, banana, oh, banana nice. What's it called again? Banoffee pie. Okay. <laughs> that sounds right. We'll, yeah. tell you. <laughs> we'll, we'll take your word for it. <laughs> I can remember. Banoffee. Favorite American food? Nachos. Nice. <laughs> okay. Uh, you are familiar with the Whiskey Tribe? Yeah. Daniel or Rex? Neither. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, God. I'm no, that's say, a perfectly good answer. I'm, they know I'm kidding. Uh, by the way, they, I'm friends with them. That was the, that's the joke. Uh, Daniel or Rex? I have to say Daniel. I've known him for a long Daniel, he brought me in. Nice. We just figure we'll tag them in this and get like a million views. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And you, what was your favorite music venue? Joe's Pub in um, Manhattan, Public Theater. Nice. Oh, cool. And your current favorite uh, musical group or musician? War on Drugs. They're coming to Edmonton this summer, Heather. Yeah, they are. All right. That could be your excuse. That's, That's kind of on rotation right now. Yeah, they're coming to our Edmonton Folk Fest. If you're looking for a time to come. Really? Yeah. There you go. I love yeah. their new record. Our new distiller, we have a new distiller, and he, he's like, you got to listen to it. So right on. That's, yeah, that's really a good. good. One. You, you said you're near Austin, right? So. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm calling you. I live in South Austin, and I guess okay. I'm sure I missed it. I just haven't. I've been so busy that I haven't paid attention to that, that fun stuff. They got a great you know what music I realized scene. I forgot to tell you. I forgot to tell you about the Port Finished Rye. Yeah. Yes. Well, the mostly I just want to tell you to drink it. It's delicious. <laughs> That's what I hear. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. I just feel bad. I can't. You're like we talked about a minute about the triple cask and the beauty of single barrels, which is a source that we find. Uh, I'm not sure what lot you have. I think it's from Tennessee probably about six years old. So we know and taste everything. And based on my time at the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, that program will always be something like a lot of barrels, like not a lot, but a lot, as in like a lot of things, a group of things and make them. And then in terms of the, um, the port finish ride, I didn't tell you about that, but that just really quickly, that's also a function of uh, something really interesting that happens in the Texas terroir because we brought those port barrels from Portugal. And because of that crazy wily temperature, the sun really expanded and contracted those casts almost like in this rapid heat cycling method way that that port really infused into that whiskey and created something really when we were talking about earlier the first thing like that science mixed with something and then there's something magical that's that port finished ride like we knew in theory that this would happen but we didn't know at the end of the day how magical it would end up being and and it just that whiskey ended up winning a ton of awards like it just it got american craft spirits association best in show uh, really blew everybody away, and myself included. That that whiskey is a powerhouse. Although I feel a little shy talking about rye to Canadians. But well, don't 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 because <laughs> it's rye. Rye is rye is not really rye up here. Like it's it's shifted over the years because a lot of people a lot of people legit think that the whiskey made with corn here is rye. So they it's confused quite a bit rye is um it's not even that like if you introduce 100 percent rye or 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 straight rye in canada a lot of people don't even really know what they're drinking surprisingly oh. enough yeah surprisingly enough and then and then you'll get alberta premium that puts out their cast strength rye and gets attention from everywhere um but it's it's yeah it's it's a weird it's a weird subject up here. And when you come up here, we'll we'll be able to walk you through it a little bit more because there's a lot of really crappy whiskeys claiming to be rye in Canada. It's oh really? really? Well, because of our laws, they don't they can say Canadian rye whiskey and they don't have to have a lick of rye in it, which is really muddling. Yeah. Like actual yeah, rye, it's hurting actual rye. Yeah. So it's it's yeah it's kind of a tough subject um i'm curious about the port barrels so what kind of port barrels do you use those are ruby from portugal ruby port okay mm-hmm. is, is that typically what other, you we, we tried other barrels but we haven't had the best of luck with other barrels 
Okay. Uh, they just taste the best. I mean, literally, they they just are unbeatable, which is tough, you know, tough for us because we have to keep getting them from Portugal on a ship. <laughs> what about the Mashville on the rye? That's a high rye. That's 95% rye. 95%. Okay. So it's, mm -hmm. yeah, it's right up there. It's a beautiful oh, yeah. whiskey. It's got a very, like, oily, kind of glassy mouthfeel to yeah. it. And then it sticks to the back of your to back of your mouth, which I find is really cool. Thank you. Do you guys have any plans to use any other types of barrels to finish product in? I would love to. Um, I think once I think once we get our expansion up and running, I think you know what you. It's interesting because like running a distillery, or you just want to keep going, but you have to sometimes finish the projects you're on. Like as much as I want to start experimenting right away and bringing in rum barrels and all sorts of different things, it's like, well, we still have to get the pieces of equipment up and running to get our stills running again. So at the moment, I think that's where we're going to stop. And the experimentation between Kentucky and um, Texas for now, but I'm not adverse to averse to trying different casts. I mean, experimentation is the most fun part of the game. <laughs> it's just yeah, a long game. You got to wait years. <laughs> yeah. Whiskey is a long game period. Yeah. It's such a long game. It's just like, uh, God, it's only been like two and a half years. When can I get that out? Does it taste good yet? You know, and you just can't force it. You just can't force it. No, you can't. That's that's why I hate the negative kind of energy around the whole sourcing thing because it just gives it gives whiskey makers the opportunity to to create something in the meantime while they're waiting for distillate to age and 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 then you still get interesting products kind of coming coming to to life mm -hmm. out of that. Mm -hmm. So. Um, I, I don't know if we got anything else. You guys got anything else to ask Heather? I just wanted to say like for, for, to launch these three whiskeys in Alberta, and we should say thanks to Rob over at drinks Inc for setting up this interview with us. Absolutely, with Heather. Yeah. Um, and it's, they're going to all be at wine and beyond. So they will be available all across the province, but this is like, it's such a nice range of flavors, Heather. And it's really? that rye is going to speak to people. The single barrel and the triple cask are very different. And I'm just, I've been going back and forth throughout the interview. I'm sure you're seeing my facial expressions, um, but it's, it's just, they're really nice whiskeys. And like you said, refined, which is what you were going for. And they are very, you know, and I can't wait to, as the bottle drains, you know, they tend to open up and change. I can't wait to see what they, what they, they taste like. Too. Yeah. And, you know, Thanks, Travis. I'm glad you said that because what you are saying to me, what I'm hearing from you is like the different array of flavors and they mm -hmm. all taste good is exactly what I wanted, what I intended. I wanted when I was talking about earlier, like finding the products and working backwards, that is exactly what I intended them to do. So that's like music to my ears because I was like, I want whiskey geeks and whiskey people to love what it is and notice that there's a difference between all three and how do I get there and back it up to get that result. So that makes me happy. You, you recently did a, a training session, I think with the wine and beyond staff. So yeah. here, here's some feedback. I went into the store yesterday to grab the rye and what you usually get, you usually get one staff member from the store kind of asking you if, if, if you need anything, by the time I, grabbed the rye i just started looking at the three and by the time i grabbed it i had three people from in the store being like oh no that one's my favorite that one's my favorite i really love that one and it was like this war of, of which bottle i should buy luckily well, i already had my eyes on the rye but they 
they said they really enjoyed that. Um, they thought it was a really, really cool, um, cool thing to experience because they don't experience it with all the brands. So I, I thought you should get that feedback. Oh my God. That really means a lot. It is true because you don't, I don't hear a lot of direct feedback. I only see like numbers on a sheet that we sell or not, but it's nice to know that people are responding to it. That's, that's awesome. I can't, you know what it really, what I really need to tell is my team, you know, the bottlers that are just sitting there and working so hard <laughs> and the distillers are like, no, it's in Canada. And the feedback's amazing, you know, so far probably, so good. Yeah. That probably goes back to, uh, we should probably wrap this up, but just that goes back to like, I mean, Steve and I are, we're all doing our own whiskey stuff now, but when it comes down to it, for me, I still love, I just did a whiskey tasting for 10 people at a private house last weekend. To me, it's still one of my favorite things is teaching people and, and educating about whiskey. So I'm sure even for you, that's still fun to do, right? It's the best part. Yeah. It's the best part. And my team loves it too. Yeah. With that said, I definitely need to. So did you say, what, when should I come to Canada? <laughs> September. <laughs> okay. Yes. August or September, the uh, Folk Fest is in August, right? Okay. Yeah. And then September, if I come into, well, we, we'll set up something really fun. So what city? Uh, I think I was talking to Robert too. Edmonton? Yeah, we're, yeah. we're all in Edmonton yeah. area. Yeah. I'm excited. Okay. Yeah. So everyone's saying September, kick off this cold season. I yeah, might get soon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you come out, if you come any later than September, it's pretty much winter. So <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, there's still snow. Ready. There's it's so crazy. Cause I've come from the Northeast and I was like, it's, it's 95 degrees today here. Yeah. Oh you know what that is in Celsius? That's like hot. 30. It's like almost 30. Yeah. There's still snow on the, there's still snow on the ground here, Heather, and some in shady yeah. alleys. There's still melted. some snow on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. It's, it was serious. seven degrees Celsius here. Yeah, I was gonna say it was a balmy 42-ish today, probably. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it got really hot quick, and then September here is still like 100 degree weather. So I, I'm thinking maybe. Maybe a little, little action, little Canada action. Yeah, well, yeah, let's do it up. Let keep us keep us posted on that, and we'll we'll keep in touch with Robert. But uh, in the meantime, we will do what we can to help uh, launch uh, Me Lemon Green in Canada, and, and just try and try and spread the good word. And that means and, a lot to yeah, for sure. Really, I'm telling you, it really does. In fact, when I got off the phone, I'm going to text the distillery team and tell them we have this conversation. <laughs> No, and when, when we when we publish this, we'll look to publish it um, as soon as we can, and we'll we'll keep you posted on that. And well, yeah, we'll go from there. Let's just keep in touch and keep drinking good whiskey. I love it. Thanks, you guys. Yeah, it's absolutely. Really nice to be here. Thank you so much. Good night. Hey, thanks again for checking out Lost in Translation. If you like what you hear, take a second to subscribe to the show and let all your friends know about this wonderful, educational, and entertaining podcast. If you want to connect with the show, check out parkwhiskeysociety.com. You can connect with each of us on Instagram at pws.media, Edmonton Scotch Club, YG Whiskey Nights, and The Cloud Whiskey. Also check out uh, the YouTube channel, Lost in Translation, for show clips. If you want to email us, you can email us at lostintranslation at gmail.com. Thanks again, everyone, and have a good one.